us here on the 411 where we want to give you relevant information and we tackle questions young adults are asking and we want to chat about faith and life in the real world and we hope that you sit back relax and enjoy the time with us Hello, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining us again. And man, again, it's just so lucky to be with uh, Steve and Jace and Sis again to discuss the Word of God. And an interesting topic, and guys, to be honest, which I've mentioned to Steve before, I, I must have overlooked this part of Scripture and not dived into it too much. But to me, when you said, Steve, that this is probably a question that you've been asked most um, over the years, Man, it, it's been fascinating for me to learn about the Nephilim and the sons of God and the different uh, understandings of who they are and, and the different approaches to it. But for me, it's been such a learning curve and so excited just to chat about it today. And so maybe you can just help us catch everyone up who hasn't heard. For those of you who haven't, you can catch um, Steve's midweek special on our Riverside YouTube page he comprehensively goes into it and lays out a wonderful explanation. But again, for those, the benefit of those who haven't heard, can you help us in two minutes? Three minutes? Yeah. Um, so usually people come across this passage because um, if anyone decides to pick up the Bible and start reading, especially especially if they start in the book of Genesis, they will read some familiar stories. Um, and then they would very quickly come across Genesis chapter 6, which has a really strange, obscure story um, with these characters. And the two main characters are this group of people known as the sons of God. And it says they saw the daughters of women and they thought they were wonderful and they took them and uh, they basically lay with them. And then the, 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 the verse also talks about the fact that there were these Nephilim, these warriors of old, and, um, and then it just dives into a, a more well-known story, the story of Noah. And so most people will either stop and say, you know, what just happened there? Like, there's no explanation. Um, and Or they'll just kind of ignore it as something strange and obscure and go to the stories that are more well-known. Um, and, and really the debate is who are these sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? And is this just... A strange story that we've kind of got to recognize that we don't have the kind of information we want uh, to correctly identify who these people are um, or is there a way to look for some threads that maybe do exist within the old and the new testament that do help us make some sense of who these characters are um, and and i think what makes this debate especially interesting is not only because it's so obscure but uh, some of the answers especially in church history have been obscure um, possibly even frightening for some people because it really doesn't seem to sit well, especially with our kind of modern sensibilities of what reality is and isn't. And um, so it really becomes just this really strange point of interest uh, for those who have kind of opened up the door and, and looked inside. Um, yeah, so in your, in your, in your midweek, just, um, I know there's two different approaches that people take looking at this thing, and some are a lot more 
comfortable with the conservative approach. And then there's uh, a theory, uh, which again makes fascinating thinking through. And uh, I think I think you seem to be more convinced of that approach. Maybe what is the conservative approach? And then maybe let's get into the nitty gritty of the other more elaborate explanation, mm. which I think is fascinating. <laughs> and I well, think um, like the thing is, like giants, uh, Goliath wasn't just this once-off giant. That there seems yeah. to be <laughs> giant people that we didn't know about. Well, I didn't know about. So yeah, yeah. help us out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've got two characters, as I said earlier, or groups of characters: the sons of God and the Nephilim. If you go and read Genesis six, verses one to four. Um, and the first question is, who are these sons of God? And the more traditional approach, um, and to be honest, this was how I used to answer this question, was really looking at the idea that um, the sons of God would really be interpreted as kind of righteous people, people of the line of what God is doing in and through humanity. So he started off with Adam and Eve. Um, uh, they were the first kind of children of God. And then they had two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, Abel was the righteous son. Cain was kind of the, the unrighteous son. And the unrighteous son killed Abel. So in other words, there were no righteous progeny for uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, but then much later in the book of Genesis, they have Seth. And um, if you follow some of these genealogies, it seems like the line of Seth is the, is the genealogical line that is followed. Um, and therefore, the interpretation is, well, Maybe the sons of God will refer to humans, but righteous humans. And by seeing daughters of men, there's kind of this idea of righteous humanity looking amongst kind of pagan, anti-God humanity, but seeing these beautiful women and taking them. And because of the intermarriage between righteousness and unrighteousness, just chaos ensuing. Very similar theory is that the sons of God is maybe more of a might refer to kind of chiefs or, or some form of, of leadership um, within the communities of that time. Uh, and, and, and that feels easy. It's, it's uh, something I can understand. It's something that seems to make a lot of sense. Where that seems to fall apart is when one starts doing a number of things. And um, if you start doing a study on the, the term sons of God, which in Hebrew is B'nai Elohim, Ben, son, Elohim, sons of God, um, you start quickly realizing that you might be able to squeeze some of those terms to refer to human beings. But there are many other uses that you can't squeeze human beings into that phraseology um, and it can only refer to some sense uh, some sort of divine beings and by divine i don't mean being equal with god but i mean spiritual powerful beings you might want to call them angels although that um, might be an insufficient term but there are these group of beings known as the sons of god um, some key passages would be uh, Psalm 82, um, Job 38 to 39, and there's a whole bunch of other passages, but uh, there are some really go-to passages that if you read them, it makes no sense that these refer to human beings. 
um, which opens up this concept that these sons of God came down and saw the daughters of men and had some sort of sexual encounter with humans, which sounds like absolute fantasy. Um, there's arguably nothing in us that, that makes sense to us. Um, the reason why I became increasingly convinced and we can, you know, allow this conversation to evolve as we carry on speaking, but is, um, as you mentioned, Daryl, there are some stories that in this paradigm actually make sense. Whereas if you exclude this explanation, the stories make less sense. And so I think this understanding of Genesis 6 has great explanatory power when it comes to uh, the whole host of connected storylines and concepts um, that don't make sense or don't have the same explanatory power if they were just human beings. But also, just uh, Jason and I were chatting a bit before this, like for Christians, it's already a stretch to kind of try and conceptualize what that means. Uh, but for a non-Christian, that sounds like absolute chaos. Um, it sounds like absolute foolishness, um, which, by the way, is not complete foolishness, if you think about it. And I hope this is not a rabbit hole that we go down too far. But if we think about at the core of our faith, or one of the core aspects of our faith, is God the Holy Spirit um, somehow causing Mary to become pregnant. Now, we're not saying that there was a sexual encounter, but we've got a spiritual reality and a physical reality bringing about Jesus, um, get this, the Son of God, right? Um, the true, the, the highest, the greatest Son of God uh, as a result of um, this very strange... So at the core of our faith is something that we're comfortable with and as many theologians would argue that um, one of the things that the incarnation is doing is reversing what happened in Genesis 6 um, and undoing the evil that happened over there. I mean, the term sons of God, um, for me, has a positive connotation to it. And that's for me. But if you, if you look at just Genesis 18 and 19, and these, these beings wanting to have intercourse with humans, um, what do we think happened there? You know, is it, is it a rebellion? Uh, these angelic beings or these uh, godly beings? And yeah, look, Genesis 18 and 19 tell a story of these angels that visited Abraham and Lot. Um, and for, for the most part, people thought that they were humans. So they appeared physically in such a way that they appeared human. They sat and had meals with Abraham, for example, a very human experience, which kind of starts to answer the question, is it at least conceivably possible for uh, angelic beings to manifest themselves in a physical way uh, such that they can do human type things? So if they can eat food, then maybe they can also do what happened and transpired in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, but it was the people of Sodom that wanted to rape these, these angels. As far as they were concerned, they were these men who were in Lot's house. So it wasn't the other way around. But there really does seem to be um, a sense that 
it's not random. It's not like these angels just, or these spiritual beings, these sons of God just randomly decided to like act out some of their fantasies, <laughs> um, but rather almost seeming to, and I don't think we've got the time and scope today, but almost shortcut or almost hijack the process whereby God wanted to have a group of human beings um, that he would one day visit in himself and unite to himself. And it seemed as if Genesis 6 was almost an attempt to invert that and uh, by doing that undercut what God would one day want to do. Um, and therefore, as I said earlier, it seems as if the incarnation is the writing of the wrong of, of uh, Genesis chapter 6. So it's an actual, it's a strategic undermining of God's plans. Um, also mentioned just uh, the New Testament referring to them in Jude in 5 mm. 7 in the sexual perversion. And also you mentioned something about angels abandoning their home. So is this that they've come down for these purposes? Um, and this undoing that you're talking about? Can you help me just understand that a bit better? Is it, yeah. Is it, is, it the, is it the third that were cast out with with Satan? Look, um, <laughs> let me just say there is a lot of debate as to exactly where we get this idea about the third being cast out. Um, obviously, there is the reference in in Revelation that talks about the dragon, the third of the stars, uh, being taken out, and and so that does seem to be a correlation, uh, but it's quite obscure. And even if that is the interpretation, there's a lot of debate as to exactly when and how that happened. For example, um, the, the Revelation 12 passage has to do with the incarnation uh, of Christ. And so that's that's that sort of Mary dragon story. Um, and, and therefore, can we interpolate that backwards to Genesis chapter 6? Um, and, and again, that's where things can get quite murky because we're not dealing with a massive amount of data and verses. Uh, but in terms of angels leaving their station, it's really God had given them a sense of responsibility. Here's, here's what you are, are not to do. Uh, there are some limits to this. And they decided to, to break those boundaries um, in a number of different ways. And one of them was this kind of unholy sexual experience between these angelic beings and humanity. I must say, uh, Steve, just says that, uh, just in, in terms of your, when you were speaking on this, um, the part where, like, I found that it, it challenged kind of my westernizing thinking, but kind of brought it home for me was when you spoke about, I think, a mission trip you took up north in, in SA, mm. and then people there, you'd ex that they'd experienced kind of a more spiritual setting in their culture and who they were. And just the idea that, uh, that demons and spirits are a real reality for them. And mm. uh, you even referenced that, um, yeah, that people would, would come and break ties with spiritual beings that they were married to, in a sense. And I, I've also heard that on, on mission trips I've heard, uh, been on. And 
So yeah, for me, that just brought context to like our westernized thinking isn't just the full picture yes. of the world's thinking. And, yes, um, yes. So yeah, that for me helped really break um, uh, the insecurities I had when I'm just reading this from a, a westernized thinking point. So yeah, Steve, so how do we, how do we tackle this idea with um, that there are spiritual forces and this Nephilim that existed all? Uh, but prevalent in our today today. I don't know if this is going to go off the topic, but how do we? Because that is a real factor that remains. Look, um, if I were to start a conversation with uh, people who are skeptical about the spiritual world, I wouldn't start with this story by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. Um, although, it's interestingly, like Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it is. It would make an amazing novel. I'm with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy fantasy. Never <laughs> rings and those sort of books. I know, Jace, you and Steve are saying. <laughs> 100%. Look, I mean, okay, so let me, t- let me take this from a number of different angles. The one is um, I was listening to a guy who is a big proponent of this theory, and he was saying how um, he's had a number of conversations with committed pagans and by pagan i'm not using the word dismissively i'm using it descriptively for those who would see themselves as part of kind of the pagan religions of the past and um as non-christians but people who believe in spiritual entities and realities this became such a powerful bridging story um that was a positive way to engage where they were at however for your kind of average rational Westerner, I wouldn't lead to this conversation. I would basically um, be trying to find ways to just uh, open them up to the reality of of just the fact that there is a spiritual reality. Um, we don't even have to call it demons, um, but that's like God is spirit. And so if God exists, there is a spiritual reality. Um, but, you know, there are ways that these stories can... Um, there's opportunities that can get created in the most unlikely of places. There's a couple that I was just working with um, and they, um, I, I got helped marry them and they were very kind of um, clear that they weren't religious or Christian in any way. Um, and then a couple of months later, they got a hold of me and basically saying, listen, we need to speak to you. Can you come and bless our house? So I'm like, I, I don't know what you mean by bless your house, but I'll, I'll come and pray for you guys, but what's going on? And then the response came back, no, um, a spirit tried to strangle me. <laughs> now I'm like, what? Okay, so in, obviously quite intrigued, I went over to their place and they were just describing themselves as people who were living in kind of a very Western worldview, very kind of scientific linear world. Uh, and these strange things started happening to them that they couldn't explain with physical manifestations. Um, and th- the only thing that helped were was when I actually went in and started just praying God's peace and God's presence over the, the place and speaking to them about the gospel. And one of the things I said to them was, listen, guys, two weeks ago, you would never have even acknowledged there was such a thing as a spiritual realm. Now you're so aware of not only spiritual evil, but also spiritual good. Um, So you need to kind of 
wisen up to what God is trying to communicate to you. Um, and, and that was with kind of working class, educated people that's had an encounter that their worldview couldn't explain. Um, yeah. Desmania, you're muted, eh? Sorry, thanks, Chase. The technical guy. Uh, Steve, is there a way to just uh, interpret this just using the scripture uh, without extra biblical uh, literature? Because I know yes. About the book of Enoch, and I know you've also recently done the midweek about the Apocrypha. Mm. And uh, if we just had scripture, would it be enough uh, to convince us of this elaborate theory? Yeah. Um, look, it, one would be literally doing a word search of B'nai in Elohim or its various cognates. So the one is like B'nai Elim, which is just another shortened version of Sons of God. Um, and, and really to do a good thorough, it won't be complex, um, but just how is this term used in these various um, passages? Uh, and I'm talking Old Testament, uh, because in the New Testament, the sons of God either refer to Jesus or to us. Um, so that would be step number one, and to kind of tabulate your findings <laughs> and make conclusions from there. The other one would be to... Any idea how many references there are just to that? <sighs> I don't. I, I know that there are you know, probably a couple of dozen, if not more. Uh, it's not just two or three. Uh, so there's a fair amount of passages that one can go to that um, if you're going to sit down and do the hard work of understanding the context, um, are these referring to Jewish leaders? Um, are these referring to just righteous people? Or are these referring to some form of divine reality. Um, and by divine, I just mean a powerful spiritual reality. I don't mean anything on par with God. Um, yeah. And again, tabulate your findings and draw conclusions from that. So th that would definitely be one way of doing it. Um, I'm pretty much convinced that um, all of the passages that use that phrase refer to these uh, beings. Some are very clear and some are pretty clear. Um, <laughs> Um, but I don't think it's hard to show that. The other one would be to look at where, um, very similar sense, where are the Nephilim spoken about elsewhere in Scripture? Um, and the only other time that the Nephilim are mentioned is in Numbers 13, when the spies are reporting back from having scoped out Canaan, and they come back, and I've, I've heard this, I've just never heard this particular point highlighted, where they report, I oh, know this land's wonderful, but the cities are huge and the people are big and scary. And then it says there in, I think, verse 33, 13, 33, that the Nephilim were there. Uh, and then they kind of draw this synonymous understanding between the Nephilim and the sons of Anak or the Anakites. So now the Bible, not the book of Enoch or not some Greco-Roman pagan documents, the Bible is telling us that the Anakites are the descendants of the Nephilim, whoever the Nephilim are. But now we're being told that uh, they are big. Now, does that mean big like um, rugby players and football players big, or is that a bigger big? 
we still have to draw those conclusions. Um, we're told that the Anakites were pretty much dealt with, if we go back to our discussion last week, in the Kerim War, the, the kind of war of Joshua upon Canaan, um, except for a couple that fled to the um, Philistine territories. Yeah. One of the towns was Gath, and that's where Goliath came from. And once again, uh, David uh, had to deal with this, not just a big Philistine, but someone who is a clear descendant of the Anakim. Um, and there are also lesser well-known stories where David's men uh, dealt with some of these other Anakim in those Philistine parts of the territory at that point in time. So again, all we're doing is a word search and just looking at all the references where this word comes up and building your conclusions from there. Um, and I think you can, if you do that alone, you can conclude that the sons of God are most likely these uh, spiritual beings and that the Nephilim are almost definitely this uh, giant's progeny of, of the this encounter between the daughters of men and the sons of God. And that's where it just smashed me in the face when you're talking about Joshua and the spies and they like say they report back these we like grasshoppers in our eyes. You know? And then yeah, the Philistine region and the Anakim and Goliath. It fully convinced me that this elaborate story and tale is you know, possibly the most likely uh, description of the Nephilim. Um, and just it, it, the, the penny just dropped. And it was just like a, like a, a watershed moment. It was so cool. So, so cool. And also, Daryl, I'd even say, uh, um, if we go to Jude and to Peter, again, th those are passages where I've seen commentators, um, like sc scholastic commentators say, Guys, these passages are obscure. We don't really know what they mean. Um, because if you take them in isolation, they are obscure. And it's very difficult to understand exactly what they mean. You know, Jesus speaking to the spirits in prison and the connotations to the flood and all this kind of thing. But if one poses the theory, and I'll, I'll happily say that that's what one is doing there, um, that what if both 2 Peter and Jude are intentional in locating these stories about these fallen angels. Both passages locate them around the flood. In fact, chronologically, if you read through 2 Peter and Jude, it's this fallen angel story followed by the flood story. And so if we're going to actually take that not as a random metaphorical connection, but a historical connection that both Peter and Jude want you to see, that means I'm going to go to the flood, Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to look for anything that's got to do with fallen angels around Genesis chapter 6. And, well, what do I find there? I find this story. Uh, so either these are disconnected stories that aren't meant to be treated that way, but I'm convinced that both Peter and Jude are intending us to make that connection. Uh, and so using the Bible, I think there is enough evidence that these dots are meant to be joined. And uh, as strange as it sounds to us, strange is not a metric for us to reject it. Um, Coherency is what we're looking for. Yeah, I'm just that the guys who have difficulty um, believing this. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you touched on the conservative approach in terms of uh, the Nephilim just being a time marker. Mm. Uh, how would they, or how are Peter and Jude explain 
Austin as, as well as you know Enoch. Again, it's not that they um, it's a biblical text, but you'd have you'd have to have a logical, reasonable reason as to reject the grasshopper approach of, of Joshua and, and yeah, you know, yeah, you know? yeah. I just think a, a bigger, a, a, a clearer picture emerges, even as strange as it is, yeah. with this versus, it's like putting on two different sets of glasses. Let me try this set of glasses on. And uh, it's the picture's like, uh, there's not a lot of explanatory power. It explains this, but it doesn't explain that. It connects this, but it doesn't connect that. Put on another set of glasses and we'll call it this theory. And suddenly a lot more falls into place. Oh, but I don't like that theory. It's too strange, um, and I'm still I'm still happy to say it's a theory. But I just think it hold it's got more clarity to it. It's got more explanatory power, um, and and therefore it's up to me whether I'm going to like on what basis am I going to reject that version? Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering again because it's all new to me. Have both of these theories been around for a long time? Or is it only more recent because you spoke about uh, your conversion uh, in terms of the two theories and, you know, how did that process happen or is this a more modern theory? Mm. Um, yes and no. Um, this is probably an older theory, but it wasn't well it wasn't very popular, especially kind of around the Reformation and the centuries following. Um, the kind of Sethites theory was was more the popular theory. And so, again, I think there is a biblical case to be made. It's also something else that happens not only in this discussion, but in many discussions, is um, kind of there's the academic world, and, and the kind of stuff that they're wrestling with and the, the documents that they're exposed to, and that often takes a long time to percolate down to kind of, because you and I are not going to read those guys. We're going to kind of read the next year guys, or maybe even next year, like your super clever pastors who are reading the middle tier guys. Um, and then eventually kind of makes it down to the average people. Um, and so... Steve. <laughs> but this theory has been uh, people have been very aware of this theory at the academic level for a very long time uh, especially with the emergence of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, and, and some of the apocryphal books so again that doesn't mean we'll never say that those Dead Sea Scrolls and apocryphal books are on par with scripture but it does give us insight as to how people were theologizing at the time um, and what is very clear is that this was pretty much how people were theologizing this at the time. And so basically we've got a theory which is thousands of years old um, that was definitely prevalent around the time of Christ and even preceding Christ. Um, and we don't take it because of an extra biblical document. We 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 consider it because of the biblical evidence, but we do see corroboration with regards to how other people, just like we'll look at N.T. Wright or John Piper or whoever your, your flavor of theologian is for the day, um, 
there were people like them writing back then, and we can access some of those materials now that the average pastor can't access, but the academics can. Um, and so uh, that's kind of a layer of knowledge that um, isn't always accessible to the average person out there. Uh, Steve, can I just ask a little bit of a, a curveball? Just, and if it is Bring too it. much of a curveball, Daz, you can just send it out the park. So it's kind of like a like a two two twofold question. It's like the the term of the sons of God, those those guys in Genesis mm -hmm. six, um, them kind of invading human territory or just arriving here and then taking uh, human wives. Why has that kind of stopped? Why have we not seen or heard of another form of uh, that sort of thing in history again? I don't know if that's a fair question. But then second question is, why wouldn't God have stopped them immediately? Steve, uh, do you think of a maybe a, a greater redemption story, even for these dudes, these, these sons of God? Or, yeah, is, or is that too much of a curveball? And then you boys can okay. have on that. <laughs> but look, look. Um, if we read Jude and Peter rightly, it yes. seems as if that um, God did judge them, and mm -hmm. there's some way in which their activity was contained. Uh, Jude talks about them being thrown into Tartarus, which is yes. the only time that word is used for hell in the New Testament. Um, but it's really the the deepest, deepest pits of of hell. And so somehow God did actually judge what they did right there and then. And so if you say, why isn't this continuing to happen? Uh, that's why, because God did uh, do that. Um, is there some other redemptive story? I, I don't think if we read the book of Hebrews, right? I don't think we can um, try to apply redemption to these beings. I, I don't think redemption is an option for them, um, unfortunately. However, um, there are some of these theological threads that become quite, want of the term, elegant. For example, what the sons of God attempted to do, and then we look at the incarnation and how the incarnation is an inversion of that. God coming down as the Son of God, um, as fully human and fully God, in order to redeem us as humans. Um, so that we can participate in the divine nature, according to P 1 Peter chapter 1. I mean, there's a beauty if we kind of parallel and invert the incarnation against the story um, and set in the much greater story arc of the scriptures. Um, I, I don't know if I can answer, well, that's why that's there. But what I can point to is how the, the gospel is a elegant solution or an undoing of one more thread. In other words, there's so many nuances and layers to what the gospel is. Here's one more compelling layer of what God is doing in the gospel. Um, and then, yeah, uh, so I, I find elegance in that. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, Jace. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> and it was coming from another obscure position like i was just thinking of kind of paul and then when he when he was tuning the corinthians for for bickering and and fighting amongst each other he said guys you gotta you gotta really look at the bigger picture and then he brings that that really obscure verse don't you know you'll judge angels so i yes 
I just wanted to like see if that if there was that like thread you were speaking about that exists here. Yes, that, that that is definitely part of the greater picture. Once again, either that's as crazy obscure text that's we don't know what it means, so let's just move on, or it does connect into this kind of it is meant to be a hyperlinked into this human spiritual reality uh, uh, storyline that is developed, albeit obscurely, but it is there. Um, and then when Paul says, don't you know that you will judge angels? Well, we do understand from the book of Hebrews that in our salvific state and eventually in our glorified state, the status we are given is above angels, uh, which is why in the New Testament, we become the sons of God. Not that we become angels, but in terms of status or hierarchy, uh, access to God's presence and power, um, we are, according to Psalm 8 and according to the book of Hebrews, given the higher status than them. And, and so, yes, part of what we do as glorified humans is going to be sitting in judgments over these beings. That's uh, very interesting. I <laughs> just... Uh... The more you think of these things, just like there is, there are dots being connected, and they yeah. are like, yeah. And, and again, like yeah, I'm just thinking, like, and you, 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 you hit it beautifully early on. And just if I'm speaking to my my Westernized atheist mate, he's he's gonna go like, this is strange. And yeah. and for me, my heart's gonna come from the evidence of Jesus, why he existed, why he died on the cross, why he was born again. Uh, and this is really a like. And I think you've also maybe mentioned this before. It's, it's an in-house kind of thinking and exploring what scriptures really has for us. And so, yeah, I, like I'm, I must say, like when I read it, I'm not nearly as comfortable as I, I would like to say I am. But I, on the on the flip side, I'm kind of glad that there's things that my westernized brain doesn't comprehend yeah. easily. And exactly. I'm glad that that scripture has that that ceiling on me that it is above me, and hmm. it's. It is, it is navigating how I should be thinking. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, Jace, just, I mean, the whole Bible must, must seem bizarre for those who, without faith, yeah. you know? Yeah. Steve also mentioned it. Susan, I don't know if you're feeling like you've been hit by a theological train there. Give us, give us something there, bud. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of information to take in. And what I found quite interesting was... Um, all of a sudden, the, the story of David and Goliath, it always seems like David like bumps into Goliath and then all of a sudden wants to fight him. It seems like a random meeting. But now when you speak of if Goliath is part of that lineage, um, and it, it seems like it was preordained by God, that meeting, and it seems like there's this um, war on like unrighteousness that God seems to be um, fighting against, and I wonder if that, if that somehow is pointing again to, to the person of Jesus and his, his the way he, he he deals with unrighteousness on the cross. Eventually, I don't know if that's a fair link to make. Yeah, well, um, there's a couple of passages again. People don't really know always what to do with them, but one of them is in Colossians two, where it talks about Christ having disarmed the powers. Um, and humiliated them by the cross. Now, whenever Paul, Paul doesn't use the term sons of God or even angels, whenever he talks about principalities and powers, it seems as if he's not just talking about 
for want of a better term, low-life demonic forces, but almost higher level um, governing evil forces. And it's most likely that Paul's theology is framed by this narrative that um, he's got in mind these sons of God um, or, yeah, these B'nai Elohim. And so by Jesus dying on the cross, he wasn't only confronting the evil of sin. I mean, he was. Um, but there's more texture to the story. And one of the other layers of the story is that he was confronting these powerful spiritual realities. And it was the cross that ultimately showed them who the Son of God truly is, so that all authority on heaven and earth would go back to Jesus, because he is the rightful Son of God. So, yes, absolutely, that link between what happened David and Goliath and God's victory in confronting that evil. It's not just about sin. It's not just about you can do it and you confront, you can confront your giants in your life. There's a humiliation of the forces of evil um, in the spiritual realm as well as the physical realm, realm that God achieves most explicitly in the cross. So cool. Yeah. And uh, Sorry, Daz, and I think, again, Westernizers will be like, that is actually a good story, and I agree with it. I can agree that the fathers defeated death. But then we have, we have to take into the account of what he actually did and the kind of the humiliation that the evil forces faced. Again, we might be like, that's not rational, but it's, it's exceptionally biblical. And, uh, and if, yeah. if I have to yield to that, I think I'm allowed to start yielding to the Nephilim, even though I feel more comfortable on the reform thinking or the conservative yeah. thinking. Yeah, yeah. At the very least, I mean, our, our, our ultimate understanding of theology in terms of who God is, salvation, soteriology, is not affected by this. But if I had to, I'd say, okay, fine, I'll give you this, the Sethite understanding of the sons of God. But can we still agree that there are powerful forces of intelligence evil out there? And we can call it the devil, uh, the, the Satan. We can call them demons. We can call them principalities and powers of darkness uh, that Paul talks about in the passage of the armor of God. And even if we leave those thoughts right there and we don't try to connect them to anything else. So, for example, uh, there's the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia that are spoken about <laughs> in the book of Daniel, uh, which I believe are those sons of God. Um even if we don't try to join those dots, we're still left with the sense of there's intelligence evil out there. Yes. Personified by our enemy and people who are opposing the active work of the kingdom of God. By people, I mean spiritual beings. Um, for, for someone who is a Christian or at least is becoming open to Christianity, I don't think, I think you have to acknowledge at least that much. Um, and, and, and once you get there, it's actually a very small jump to uh, recognizing some of the connections that may exist with the greater narratives of Scripture. Jace, I'm going to put you on the spot here. How do we, how do we land this plane? Practically speaking for, for our faith today and just uh, the beautiful stuff that's been shared now. Mm, I, so for me, like especially... Again, with things that are obscured, uh, first thing is, what do I know for sure? And what is guaranteed for me in uh, the Christian faith? And again, Jesus is the resurrection. I look at that and then I base from that. So that was always what my hope and what my um, 
faith is based on. So regardless of whether we judge angels or whether the Nephilim exists, that's a sidebar. But I think God and his majesty, these things are in scripture for a reason. And we get to look at them, explore them, think them out. And what I don't think it should do is affect what's happened on the cross and the evidence for that. Uh, But instead, I think it should heighten things. It should heighten excitement of that our Bible's far above us and um, yeah, and that God is so much far above it. So in terms of what it does for my faith, it doesn't change what happened on the cross, but it does uh, increase my curiosity to learn more about him in the Old Testament and just sort of was going down there and how that kind of threads to where we are. Yeah, so, awesome, man. Steve, says anything from you before you Yeah, I just think Maybe. it points very well. Um, sorry, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm just saying, with uh, echoing what Jay says, like, the, for me, what I've noticed is, again, this thread of um, God and wanting to redeem his people, but also fight against unrighteousness and bring back righteousness throughout that. We see, again, humans rebel. Um, some of the angels seem to be rebelling as well. And um, there seems to be, again, God fighting through that. And ultimately, his victory on the cross, and again, what that means for us today impacts us, I think, the most. Um, so, yeah, just echoing again what Jace is saying. No, and, and I think um, we did allude to it earlier, but, I mean, for anyone who's not in South Africa listening to this, like, we're in South Africa, um, where if you've got my color skin, you're in a massive minority um, and if you're educated, uh, uh, if you go into varsity, you're in a massive minority, meaning that there are large proportions of our population who are already convinced of a spiritual reality. Um, and this gives us ways of speaking to them about the gospel and the victory of Christ over the evil forces that they are already convinced exist. And so um, there's just evangelistic or even apologetic opportunity there that uh, is not always going to be restricted to rational Western environments. Um, but in our nation, we've got such uh, opportunity and, and latitude to apply the gospel in uh, more ways than maybe we've always been aware of. Guys, I'm sure we can go forever still, uh, but it's been so cool and so encouraging for me when just uh, we have these conversations Again, there's a there's part of me that feels guilty that I, that I don't know enough. But as Jason says, there's always more for us to dive into. And so, thanks again for your encouragement. And as we spur each other on to 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 take big bites of these difficult topics. And again, not not to puff ourselves up, but to again reflect on what Jesus has done and how He's conquered these things and how he has changed our lives forever. And where uh, the Bible and life and real life intersect, it's where we want to be and live these things out. So again, guys, I've been massively encouraged. And anyone else who's watching who has been encouraged, please like and send this out to as many as you can. And we'll catch up again with you guys next week. So thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers.